But if you turn in your Bibles to Jonah, uh, chapter 3, in the church Bible, that's page 929, and in the large print Bible, 1519. I don't know how many times uh, you have heard the gospel, the good news that Jesus has come to die for us, that he has risen from the dead, that we can have eternal life. And I say those words, and we speak those words uh, from this pulpit uh, really week after week. The message is uh, the same in so many ways, that Jesus has come And he has come to save us from our sins. And I wonder whether we hear it so many times that we lose the the wonder and the, uh, the, the, the amazement that Christ has done this for us. It can just be so familiar. And tonight we're going to hear it again. As we read Jonah chapter 3 and we see... Uh, that there is salvation in this passage to a group of people who deserve to be condemned, we can remember again that we deserve to be separated from God forever in hell, but yet God has had mercy upon us. And we need to pray uh, regularly that God would deliver us from being over-familiar with these truths, that when we think about them, we are not yet again amazed at what God has done for us. Because they can be over-familiar, can't they? We can sometimes forget how awesome this is that we can be Christians, that we can have eternal life in heaven with God. It's a wonderful thing. And as we look at this passage uh, this evening, let us not be uh, over-familiar. Let us be amazed again at what God does here and what he has done for us. In fact, we need to pray that we'll be delivered from being like Israel was at the time that this account of Jonah was taking place. Part of the purpose of this prophecy in Jonah was to show Israel who had not repented at the preaching of Hosea and Amos, who are Jonah's contemporaries, how they ought to respond to God in his word of judgment against them. Hosea and Amos had preached against Israel, and yet Israel were rejecting God time after time after time. And there's this prophecy of Jonah, of how God deals with pagans like the sailors and the Ninevites. And God surprises the reader through how he extends mercy to those people. And in a sense, it's to prompt Israel to show their need to respond to God's mercy in the same way. And you see this all through Jonah because all through the narrative, Jonah, the unrepentant representative of Israel, is shown to be an arrogant fool, not learning the lessons that God is teaching him, whereas the people who are not Jewish, who have not had all the advantages that the Jewish people had of hearing God's word, the sailors and the people of Nineveh, well, they respond to God in the right way. In fact, Moses sings about this in the book of Deuteronomy. He talks about or sings about a time 
when Israel reject God and what God will do to try and win them back. Listen to Jonah. I'm not going to sing it. I'm going to read it. But listen to Jonah's song. They made me jealous by what is no God and angered me with their worthless idols. I will make them envious by those who are not a people. I will make them angry by a nation that has no understanding. That's exactly what's happening in Jonah. People who have no understanding, no previous knowledge of God, are responding to the message, whereas God's people make him jealous with their idolatry. In the New Testament, Paul actually writes in a similar way about his role in sharing the gospel with non-Jewish people. In this passage, non-Jews are called Gentiles. Romans chapter 11, verses 13 to 14. I am talking to you Gentiles. Inasmuch as I am to the, the apostle to the Gentiles, I take pride in my ministry in the hope that I may somehow arouse my own people, who are the Jews, to envy and save some of them. And it seems that God is doing the same in the book of Jonah as well. He is saying to God's people, look at the response of the people that have had none of the advantages that you have had of hearing God's word. People who are wicked, look at how God has blessed them. Do you not want the same? And as we look at Jonah chapter 3, we who are perhaps familiar with the gospel need to recognize how we need to keep responding in the same way that Nineveh does here, in repentance. Now, the book of Jonah is split into two uh, sections of two chapters in our Bibles. And in each section, we see God's word to Jonah, Jonah encountering unbelievers, and then Jonah having a conversation with God. In each section, we see the surprise of unbelievers acting admirably, and Jonah behaving in a dismissive and unhelpful way. And it's supposed to be a surprise to us. And throughout the story, everything in Jonah is turned upside down. And in chapter 3, there is another surprise. We see this wicked, bloodthirsty people turning to God in repentance. In this chapter, we see that everything is overturned. So let's read uh, Jonah chapter 3 from verse 1. Then the word of the Lord came to Jonah a second time. Go to the great city of Nineveh and proclaim to it the message I give you. Jonah obeyed the word of the Lord and went to Nineveh. Now Nineveh was a very large city. It took three days to go through it. Jonah began by going a day's journey into the city. Proclaiming, 40 more days and Nineveh will be overthrown. The Ninevites believed God. A fast was proclaimed and all of them from the greatest to the least put on sackcloth. When Jonah's warning reached the king of Nineveh, he rose from his throne, took off his royal robes, covered himself with sackcloth and sat down in the dust. This is the proclamation he issued in Nineveh. By decree of the king and his nobles, do not let people or animals, herds or flocks, taste anything. 
Do not let them eat or drink, but let people and animals be covered with sackcloth. Let everyone call urgently on God. Let them give up their evil ways and their violence. Who knows? God may yet relent and with compassion turn his face from anger, from, from his fierce anger, so that we will not perish. When God saw what they did and how they turned from their evil ways, he relented and did not bring on them the destruction he had threatened. And this is God's word. Now, chapter 3 of Jonah can be summarized in three words that we find in this passage. Overturned. That's the message God gives to Jonah. Believed. That's the response of the people of Nineveh. And relent. That's the mercy that God has. Overturned, believed, relent. That's chapter 3 of Jonah. And in this chapter, the focus turns really from Jonah and his relationship with God to the people of Nineveh and their relationship with God. In verses 1 to 3, Jonah is told to go to Nineveh again. In fact, in verse 1, Uh, the words of that verse are almost identical with Jonah chapter 1, verse 1. The only difference is the addition of a second time. Because the word of the Lord had come to Jonah in chapter 1, verse 1, and here we read that the word of the Lord came to Jonah a second time. Now, verse 2, the command that Jonah is given is pretty much the same as Jonah chapter 1, verse 2. He's to, to go to Nineveh and to preach the word that God gives him. And this time, unlike chapter 1, Jonah goes to Nineveh. Now some people might say, well, hooray, Jonah finally has repented of his sin and he's now obeying the Lord. Well, we actually will see whether Jonah has really repented in the next chapter. What we do know for sure is Jonah has no choice. He knows that, doesn't he? He knows that he has rejected God once and run away, there's no point in trying again. He goes to Nineveh and he obeys. Has he repented? We'll find that out next time. But in verse 3, he does obey the voice of the Lord, and Jonah went to Nineveh. The word there that we uh, translate as went can also be translated as walk, and so it literally would say he walked to Nineveh. Now, Nineveh was 900 miles So it was quite a walk uh, that he had to go. We didn't know that in chapter 1. That might have been one of the reasons he didn't want to go, having to walk all that way. But nevertheless, he does go. He walks the 900 miles to Nineveh. At the end of chapter 3, it says that Nineveh was a very large city, that it took three days to go through it. Now, it doesn't literally take three days to walk from one edge of the city to the other. It may include the surrounding area of Nineveh, but more likely what the the author is saying here is that Nineveh was a three-day visit. If I was to say to you, we're going to go to London, we've never been before, and we're going to do it in a day, you might look at me and say, you're never going to do London in a day. It'll take at least in London, however long you think it might take to see London. That's the kind of thing uh, that the author's probably saying here, it's a, it's a three-day visit to Nineveh. 
Where we read, though, Nineveh was a very large city, the Hebrew actually says Nineveh was a very great city to God. And some translations, like the the ESV and the uh, Christian Standard Bible, have a footnote in their Bible to that effect. And what's going on here is a double meaning. One, Nineveh was a large city in size. It's a three-day visit. But also, Nineveh was an important city to God. And that's why he sends Jonah, because it's important to God. God wants us to know that these people are important to him. Jonah has his reservations about Nineveh. He doesn't want to go there, but it's important to God. And that's an important lesson for us. We may look at groups of people or individuals with disdain. They may annoy us. They may be different to us. They may be horrible to us. They may be wicked, but they are important to God and we should show love to them. But in verse 4, Jonah begins going through Nineveh and he gives the message. And this is where we find the first word on which the passage is based. The message, Nineveh will be overthrown. In fact, Jonah's message is very, very uh, simple in many ways. In verse 4, Jonah began going a day's journey into the city, proclaiming 40 more days and Nineveh will be overthrown. Uh, his, his message in the Hebrew is just five words. Some of you may be thinking, well, maybe we can have a few more of those kind of sermons. F- just five words. But actually, uh, it may just be a summary of what Jonah was saying. We don't really know. But there seems to be some things he misses out that we might expect. What should Nineveh do if they're going to be overthrown? There's no mention of God in his sermon. It may just be a a summary or it may be that he has missed out a whole load of things. But the key word in this message is the word overthrown. It can also be translated as overturned. And in the Old Testament, the word that's translated overthrown or overturned has two different meanings. The first meaning of overturned is what we might expect, destruction. And that's the way that it's used, for example, in Genesis. Uh, Listen to these words from Genesis chapter 19. So when God destroyed the cities of the plain, he remembered Abraham and he brought Lot out of the catastrophe that overthrew the cities where Lot had lived. So Sodom and Gomorrah were destroyed. And one of the ways that that is described is that word overthrown. So in one sense, Jonah is saying to the people of Nineveh, in 40 days, you're going to be destroyed. Your time is up. God is going to wipe you out. That's the first thing. But overturned also has another meaning. And that's uh, the meaning of repentance or turning around. So an example where that is used is before uh, Saul became king in Israel, the prophet Samuel said that the Spirit of God would come upon him. And this is what we read. The Spirit of the Lord will come powerfully upon you and you will prophesy with them and you will be changed 
into a different person. And that word changed could also read, you will be overturned into a different person. So the word changed is the same Hebrew word as overturned. And this is important to recognize because the message that Jonah was giving to Nineveh could go two ways. They will be overturned. They will be overturned either by being destroyed or they'll be overturned by turning to God in repentance. Another reason that we uh, can uh, recognize that God wasn't necessarily saying you're definitely going to be destroyed is because he gives them 40 days to tell them about it. I mean, if God was just going to destroy them, you could have done it without giving them a 40-day warning. But God gives them this opportunity to repent. He could have destroyed them immediately, but they had 40 days. And they were going to be overturned, but we don't know which way it was going to go. And the same message is given to us today. Now, we're not necessarily given the luxury of a time period. We may have 40 days left in our lives. We may have 40 minutes. We may have 40 seconds. Our days are numbered according to God himself. We don't know how long we have. God is patient, but he doesn't allow us to reject him forever. And the message for us is still the same. We will be overturned. Either we're going to be overturned by God sending us to hell, where we will be destroyed forever, or we're going to be overturned by us turning to God in repentance. And there is a time limit for all of us to turn to God before we face his wrath. Either we pay for our sin in hell, or we allow Jesus Christ to pay the penalty for us on the cross. And on the cross, when Jesus died, he was overturned. The perfect Son of God was treated as a sinner so that we could be forgiven of our sin. He paid the price for us, overturned. So we can accept Jesus being punished for us and turn to God in repentance, or we can pay the penalty ourselves. But the message is the same. In 40 days, or whatever the time limit is, we will be overturned. Well, how should we respond? The response that we should have should be like that of Nineveh. Nineveh's response was that they believed God. Look at the, the first few words of verse 5. The Ninevites believed God. What does believing God mean? What, 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 when we say, I believe in Jesus, what are we saying? It's more than just believing in the existence of God. To believe God in the way that we read here is to trust that what he says is true and then to act upon it accordingly. To trust that what God says is true and to act upon it accordingly. And we see that they believed what Jonah was saying in how they acted. They proclaim a fast and they put on sackcloth. 
Well, we know what, what fasting is. It's uh, going without food. And it was a way of seeking God's mercy. It was a common ancient way of showing sorrow and grief and humility. And so was wearing sackcloth. Sackcloth was uh, a thick, coarse cloth, usually made uh, from goat's hair. It was uncomfortable to wear. And it showed a rejection of earthly comfort and pleasure. And combined with fasting, fasting and sackcloth were common ways that the ancient people showed that they were sorry, that they were in grief over what they had done, and that they were humbling themselves under God. In other words, they were showing that they were serious about change. They had overturned. And it says that all of them, all the Ninevites, it says, uh, from the greatest to the least, put on sackcloth. All of them. It was a, a city-wide event, is what it's talking about. You couldn't go around the city and not notice that something quite extraordinary was going on. Not least because a whole uh, load of people are there wearing sackcloth and not eating. This, by the way, what is going on here, that these people who had no history of, of knowing God would believe the preaching of Jonah is a far greater miracle than Jonah surviving the fish. What is going on here is the biggest miracle in Jonah. And it is a far greater miracle that any one of us would believe God and what he says about Jesus. It's the biggest miracle that can possibly happen in someone's life. And we read in verse 5 that they believe from the greatest to the least. And that includes the greatest man in the city, the man at the very top, the king. We see him in verse 6. And in verse 6, the king, uh, if you notice here, literally overturns. Notice what he does. He rose from his throne, took off his royal robes, covered himself with sackcloth, and sat down in the dust. The beginning to the end of that shows the overturning. He gets up from his throne, the place of power and authority. He gets up from there. He takes off the royal robes and puts on this sackcloth. And he doesn't put sackcloth on and go and sit back on the throne. No, he sits in the dust with everyone else. The king is overturned. You would not know if you were walking through Nineveh who the king was. That's true humility, isn't it? Being shown by the king of Nineveh who swaps sitting on his throne to sitting in the dust before God, allowing God, or not even allowing, recognizing that God is the one who is on the throne. And in verses 7 to 8, the king uses his authority to order his people to overturn as well. He issues a decree in in the city that basically intensifies what is already happening. So he caused them to intensify the fast and put on sackcloth. And he even, it says uh, there in verse 7, sorry, verse 8, that the people and animals as well 
are to be covered with sackcloth. Even the animals have to do this. Well, why does he include the animals? What, why would you do that? And uh, if we're having a fast, and you, if, you're, if you're having a fast and you've got a pet dog, you don't normally include the dog in the fast, do you? What is going on? Well, likely what is going on is that we're being shown here the, the sincerity of their repentance and the seriousness of their repentance. The sincerity and the seriousness of what they are doing. They're so serious about this, so concerned about what God might do, that they even include the animals. And actually, if you think about it, imagine what the noise and the the, the commotion would be when you've got these animals not eating and having to put on the sackcloth. It would be it would be quite something to see, wouldn't it? So they were, they were serious about what they were doing. He, he calls on them to call urgently on God in verse 8. Call urgently on God. He tells his people to pray and to pray urgently, showing that he's, he's taking this seriously. He is taking this threat upon his people so serious that he tells all of them, urgently to pray to God. And then in verse, uh, at the end of verse 8, he tells them to repent. Or it says give up, but to give up means to turn from, and to give up means to repent. He calls them to turn from their evil ways and violence. And when it says violence there, that is the specific sin that the people of Nineveh were known for. Turn from those sins that we all know that we're doing. Turn from those evil ways. And what we see here is a, a threefold process that shows how we believe in God. The first thing they do is they agree with God about the seriousness of their sin. And so they fast and put on sackcloth. That's the first step to believing in God. God, you are right. My sin, the things that I have done and thought and said, even by accident, Lord, what you say about those things are true. You are a perfect and a holy God, and I deserve to be separated from you forever, and I confess that I have sinned. You are right, God. They agreed with God. Then they cried out for mercy in prayer. And that's the second thing we're to do. If we're, we recognize that we are sinners before God, and so we cry out for mercy. And we do so urgently, knowing that we desperately need God. And then the third thing they do is they actively turn away from the sin that they know offends God, and they start to live as He commands them. They got serious about obedience. Now, you may be a violent person, there, but there are, if you're not, there are a hundred other things, at least in my life, that I know that I need to continue to repent of. All of us have specific things that we know offend God. We need to get serious about sin. That's what's going on here. They agree with God on the seriousness of their situation. They cry out in prayer and they turn from their sin and they start to obey. 
Let me ask you, do you believe God's message about being overturned? Do you believe? God is saying here that you have a a, a limited time, that we don't know what that is. There is an urgent need to turn to God. Do you believe? Do you agree with God that you are a sinner? Do you believe in such a way that you would pray for him to forgive your sin? Do you believe God in such a way that you are serious about turning from sin and following him? Nineveh did this based on the message of Jonah. But we have something far more than the people of Nineveh did. We have the the life and the preaching and the resurrection of Jesus Christ to show to us that these things are true. In the New Testament, the repentance of the people of Nineveh was used as an example of how we should respond to God. We read in Matthew chapter 12, and it's repeated actually in Luke chapter 11, of how uh, the religious leaders asked Jesus for a sign. They were accusing him of being from the devil. And they demanded a sign that proved that what he was saying was true. And I'm going to read you, and the words will be on the screen, Luke's account of what happened. As the crowds increased, Jesus said, This is a wicked generation. It asks for a sign, but none will be given it except the sign of Jonah. For as Jonah was a sign to the Ninevites, so also will the Son of Man be to this generation. The Queen of the South will rise at the judgment with the people of this generation and condemn them. For she came from the ends of the earth to listen to Solomon's wisdom, and now something greater than Solomon is here. The men of Nineveh will stand up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it, for they repented at the preaching of Jonah, and now something greater than Jonah is here. Jonah was a sign to the Ninevites because he had come back from the realm of the dead and preached to them. And they saw him there, alive and kicking, telling them, in 40 days you're going to be overthrown. And Nineveh saw Jonah, and they heard his message, and they repented of sin. The people of Nineveh were not Jewish. They had not had the benefits of God's revelation for their whole history, as those people who asked Jesus for a sign had had. They had not had the priests and the prophets and the kings that Israel had had. And Jesus come, or Jonah comes and he preaches and they dramatically repent of their sin based on what he is saying. And Jesus in this passage, with those words on the screen, talks about the day of judgment. The day of judgment is that time when we stand before God and give account for our lives and either we are sent to heaven or hell based on how we respond to Jesus Christ. And if we have not believed, that is, trusting that what he says is true and acting on it accordingly, if we have not believed in him, then we are condemned to hell. And the people of Nineveh, Jesus says, will stand and they'll condemn us because we have a far greater revelation than they had. They had Jonah, this rebellious, 
uh, prophet who had run away from God, who didn't even want to be there, preaching to them. They responded to his message. And what do we have? We have Jesus Christ, who has proved who he is through his words and his miracles. He died for our sins, and he has risen from the dead. And we have all the evidence that we could possibly ever need to prove that he has risen from the dead. We have all of this, which they had none of. And they will stand and condemn us because they had something far less, and we have something far greater. We have Jesus. And so when we see the Bible and we read about Jesus and what he has done for us, and we say, nah, I don't believe it. The people at Nineveh, they'll stand and say, I, just, I can't understand how you cannot believe. We believe Jonah. And Jesus is far greater. He's a greater prophet because he was sinless and he actually loved the people he was speaking to. Jesus had a greater message than Jonah, which was that the kingdom of God is here and that he is the Messiah. He died a greater death than Jonah because it wasn't just for a few sailors in a boat. It was for all those in the whole world who would put their faith in him. And he has a greater sign, not just coming back from a fish's belly, but coming back from the very grave itself. When Nineveh saw Jonah alive and heard his message, they believed. We have no excuse for seeing Jesus Christ alive in the accounts of the Gospels and for ignoring him when all the evidence is there. Do you believe? If not, why not? What is it that you're not? Why, why, why would you not believe? Because he's risen from the dead. A greater than Jonah is here. But what is most wonderful and most miraculous about this passage is this. God had mercy. God had mercy. He relented. In verse 9, though, the king isn't so sure about this. Look at what he says. Who knows? God may yet relent with compassion, turn his fierce ang- from his fierce anger so that we will not perish. He, the, the king of Nineveh said, well, he, he may do it. He didn't know for sure. He knows they don't deserve it, but he, God may. But verse 10 is the most wonderful verse in the book of Jonah as far as I'm concerned. It says, when God saw what they did, And how they turned from their evil ways, he relented and did not bring on them the destruction he had threatened. Isn't that wonderful? That he relented. And God does relent when he sees repentance. Now, relent here uh, is sometimes wrongly seen as God changing his mind. So sometimes people speak of this in this kind of a way. Uh, God was going to destroy them, but Nineveh uh, worked really hard and and twisted God's arm so that he held back from judging them. And so God changed his mind, and so he didn't destroy them. Well, whenever we use the phrase, God changed his mind, 
we've kind of strayed into wrong thinking. God doesn't change his mind because God is unchanging. God sits above time and space and has a sovereign plan that is beyond what we can comprehend. A plan that here was for Nineveh to repent so that he would not destroy them as he had threatened. But God works in time and space where we are so that we can know for sure that if we repent of our sin and we turn to Jesus, we can know for sure because God has promised us that we can be saved from his wrath. In fact, God promises this to nations like Nineveh. Listen to Jeremiah chapter, seven, uh, chapter 18, verses 7 and 8. If at any time I announce the nation or kingdom is to be uprooted, torn down and destroyed, and if that nation I warned repents of its evil, then I will relent and not inflict on it the disaster I had planned. And God promises to us, Peter preaches this after the resurrection of Jesus. Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Therefore, if God did not respond to the repentance of Nineveh, he would be changing what he had said in how he does respond to genuine repentance. And this is good news, isn't it? Because we can be forgiven and saved from God's wrath if we believe that Jesus is God who has come and has died and has risen from the dead and we repent of our sin and we follow him. We can know for sure that God will relent from his fierce anger against us if we believe in Jesus. Nineveh was overturned, not by destruction, but by repentance. Now, in many ways, this is a warning and an encouragement to those here this evening who are not Christians. If you are not a Christian, there is a message here for you. You are a sinner that will be overturned. And that will be destruction unless you believe God that Jesus has died for your sin and risen again and you turn from your sin and you follow him. If you do that, God will have mercy on you. But there's also a message here for us as Christians. Because repentance is an ongoing daily lifestyle. Just after the book of Jonah, two books later, we come to the book of Nahum. A prophecy that is given to Nineveh where they are destroyed. It seems that they did repent, but perhaps did not remain faithful to the Lord. Repentance is not just a one-off, put on some sackcloth and everything is all right. Repentance is every morning waking up and saying, I still believe and I'm going to follow Jesus Christ. But secondly, this passage encourages us to go and share the message of the gospel with unbelievers. Even those that we do not like, even those that we do not expect to turn to Jesus, because God may well relent and turn from his fierce anger so that they too will not perish. 
And this causes us, or should cause us, to pray for our own village and our own surrounding area. At the end of the book of Jonah, we read how uh, God talks of 120,000 people in Nineveh. In this area alone, where we live, there are over 250,000 people. There's much to pray for, that God would have mercy in our day, as he does here with Nineveh. So why don't we, right now, just turn to God and let's pray that he would have mercy. Dear Heavenly Father, we give thanks that you are a God of great mercy and that you have had mercy on wicked Nineveh in this account today. And we pray that you would extend that same mercy into our own area where there are hundreds of thousands of people that do not know Jesus Christ. And I pray for those who are here this evening that do not profess to be believers in you. Would you speak to their hearts, Heavenly Father, and show them that they need Jesus so much that they would repent of their sin and follow you. We pray these things, Heavenly Father, for the glory of your name. Amen. Well, we're going to respond uh, by celebrating the fact that we can receive God's mercy. We have heard a joyful sound, and there is no more joyful sound, is there? Jesus saves. So let's stand uh, as we sing and celebrate the fact that we have a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. <laughs>